What's up? Welcome to Sweathead. It's Mark Pollard here. I've got an old friend, Seb Chan, all the way from Melbourne. Seb Chan is the CXO, the Chief Experience Officer at ACMI, which is the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. We're going to be talking about museums today and designing for the digital space and how you do that and what a museum is. But little, a quick bit of background because... Seb's uh, one of these guys who's been contributing and doing a ton of stuff around subcultures probably since his early teens, if not sooner, everything from uh, running, a, I'll call it a DJ crew, a sound system called Subbass Snarl, which used to play a lot of the uh, underground and less underground raves and, uh, in, the, in the music world in Australia in the 1990s, as well as running Cyclic Defrost, a zine, uh, tons of events contributing to the Sound Summit, which was a music conference for independent record labels that lasted a few years up in Newcastle. And he also had a, and also we we did radio shows back to back for, well, I, I did mine it's called The Mothership Connection and I inherited it from a, a young man called Miguel D'Souza. I did that for about five years and Seb and his partner Luke were always there looking over my shoulder, just taking care of me because I was a wee lad, a young boy back, at, back then. And, um, by day, Seb's been working in museums and helping them digitize and is kind of one of the world experts. So if there's a museum conference or a, a conference about digitizing a museum or a physical space or maybe even a city, chances are Seb Chan is going to get flown in to talk about that. What's up, Seb? It's great to have you. Mark, hi. Yeah, man. Great. It's been a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's, uh, let's start with a super easy question. What is a museum? And how has the idea of a museum changed since you've been working inside them? Yeah, museums are funny things, you know. I think um, I've kind of been working in them since uh, 1999 now, so pretty long, long time now. And I think in uh, that 20 years, nearly 20 years, Jesus, uh, it's pretty interesting that museums have really shifted. Museums, we used to think when I started working, when uh, I didn't even intend to work in, work in the field really when I, uh, when, when I landed at the powerhouse, at the powerhouse museum, but museums were those places that you went, went to on school, you know, excursions or trips. And they were places you maybe went with your parents, depend, depending on whether your parents wanted to take, take you to those sorts of things. And I think museums now have become these really in, interesting and exciting, um, uh, popular places. And so what we're seeing in the contemporary art world is that, Art, art, art galleries, as they're called, called, in, called in Australia, um, in uh, America, art museums um, are really massively popular. Um, the visitation is going kind of through the roof um, and other types of museums are also benefiting from that too. And it's, it's been fascinating to, to see museums transform um, from these spaces that were about old, old things to, to being places that are about... Um, places for talking about and being provoked about the issues that are going on in contemporary society. Uh, but using those old, older things as almost like props to uh, begin conversations about um, uh, issues around uh, um, inequality, around uh, our um, societies, around climate kind of change, all of these sorts of things. And I think it's been fascinating working in this space because the role of the stuff museums used, used to be around to preserve, in quotes, for, uh, forever has really, really shifted. And that's, that's been paralleled with this rise, of course, in, in the web. And then also digitisation. 
And okay, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll, I'm going to get back into that, but just so people understand some of the work you've actually done, could you, you had a long stint at the Powerhouse Museum. I lived within 20 minutes of that place for probably 20 years of my life, 20 minutes walk, by the way. <laughs> and I remember going there as a kid and, you know, there were some screens where there was probably a stick figure and you could uh, push the screen and maybe put a hat on the stick figure. And I thought, oh, that's incredible. Uh, and so the powerhouse museum has played like a pretty significant role in a lot of people's youth growing up, even if it was a visit once every couple of years, what work did you do there? And specifically, could you take us through that Flickr case study that we yeah. talked about a long time ago? Sure. Look at uh, kind of the powerhouse museum. I began in the IT department as most of us who grew up with the web, we did. We we made websites and other things in our spare time, and we 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 fell into the digital space, usually through um, the IT space. So anyway, I began in the I in uh, the IT team there, and in the early two thousands, I uh, became the web manager there, and then went up through um, that and finished up as one of the executive team as the head of digital, social, and emerging tech technologies there but it was it was interesting because a lot of the work that I started started out doing there was um, working uh, working on the web and working bringing those sorts of experiences that you had in the galleries those interactive experiences that the powerhouse as were many other science and tech technology museums they had on those touch kind of screens it kind of a bit sort of janky uh, janky and they were a little bit like those CD-ROMs you played in the 1990s. They weren't quite there yet. Um, taking a lot of those ideas and putting them onto the web and also creating these resources on um, on kind of the web for particularly teachers and schools and curious people to explore. So some of the first uh, stuff probably in the early two, two, 2000s um, when I started we had the Olympic Games in Sid Sydney and I um, helped out just because I was also at the time writing, um, writing for a, a kind of video gaming magazine in Australia, um, I helped um, I helped helped out doing tech, tech tech technical support on this exhibition that was bringing these treasures from Greece to uh, Sydney for the, uh, for the Olympic Games, and so. Uh, some of my, my colleagues at the powerhouse made this uh, virtual reconstruction of Olympia. So they did, um, you know, uh, uh, spherical photography, so 360 photography, and using um, uh, 3D scanning and 3, uh, 3D modelling, built this whole virtual Olympia with the Temple of Zeus and all of that. And it's funny now, I, I sort of was playing Assassin's, um, 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 Assassin's Creed, Creed Odyssey with my kids the other day. And we were going through the same spaces that the powerhouse had modeled, you know, 20 years ago, uh, using very, very primitive equipment comparative to what is now possible with, you know, 3d graphics and, um, uh, LIDAR scanning and all, um, and all of that. So the powerhouse, you know, I was involved in tech, uh, technical support initially, then, uh, putting the museum on the web in a more sophisticated and detailed way and then around two, 2005 when the social web became a thing that, that museums noticed um you know i got really involved in this notion of how if we put the collection on the web uh could the public start to engage with that collection and tell us things about it in new ways so uh, we were the first museum to uh, join the Flickr Commons. So the Flickr Commons was set up by an Australian worker at F uh, Flickr called George Oates. And George 
um, set 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 that up initially with uh, with the Library of Congress, and then when she uh, actually actually was out in Sid Sydney visiting, uh, speaking at Web um, um, at Web uh, Web Direction South, um, she came into the powerhouse. We had a chat and. At the powerhouse, we said, well, we have this huge photo archive. It'd be great if we could also put that up into the Flickr Commons. And what was fascinating about that, what was fascinating about the Flickr Commons was it was this sense of uh, a public domain collection. So putting all of those photos that you had and digitized that were all out of copyright, put them all up on the, on the, on the web for free for people to download and all of that. But because of Flickr, People could also uh, comment on all of those uh, photos. They, they could also help us geo kind of locate them. So placing them, them on a map. And that uh, began this huge journey for the museum around what does it mean to give the collection you have back kind of to the public so the public can, can enhance the information that you know about it. So following Flickr Commons, we then put the, put, the whole digitized collection up on uh, to the web with some of those same features that uh, Flickr had with, with uh, tagging and we did some early semantic web, ex web experiments, some early rec recommendation tools, all of that sort of stuff. And, and that work of um, what, I, what I would say, I guess, giving the collection away became some, something that I became known for uh, mm. around 2006, seven, eight. And just on that, I remember at the time there was some statistic, in my mind there was a statistic about the amount of stuff material that the museum owned and the amount of the material that was in the public presence. Do you recall that ratio? Yeah, look, uh, the powerhouse had about uh, less kind of than 1% one, 1 of its collection on kind of view at any point in time. So, you know, museums have enormous collections and what you see through ex exhibitions is a tiny slice of um, that. And so the, the, the possibility space of the web, the idea that the web could hold and show all of um, this, all of the things that you couldn't, ever show publicly was kind of amazing and utopian. And if you psychoanalyze the people around museums, uh, there's definitely, a, I guess, a gluttony and a hoarding and controlling and power and ego and status aspect to it, right? The idea of sharing these things with the public and of allowing the public to add to them and maybe even change the meaning and even the importance of these things, did that meet any resistance at the Bauhaus Museum? Yeah, look, it was interesting. I mean, I think the powerhouse was a, was a very democratic space and I think it um, was one of the more uh, democratic museums of that, that period and was very uh, generous with its sharing with the public. Um, I think when I went sub, sub, subsequently to, ad, to, ad, to, ad, to advise other museums, I've, 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 I found other museums a lot more resistant to the idea. I mean... Museums are about um, cur curation, so choosing things, choosing the things that are important to collect and choosing the things that are important to collect and preserve on behalf of a public. But, of course, as those skills of curation become um, 
highly valued and uh, social status acquiring and all of that. Um, you can see why people are a little uh, concerned when uh, you might suggest that the public might recommend that you collected other things. Um, so that's that normal power thing. But but at the powerhouse, people were very generous. I think that the the challenge that the powerhouse faced at that uh, that that time was that exhibitions are very are a very very good way of limiting the range of topics that you're willing to talk to the public at a particular point in time about. So if you have a fashion exhibition on at the moment, of course your curators are very excited about talk, 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 talking about that fashion topic at that, um, um, at that time, but perhaps not so much about space kind of travel. Um, as soon as you put everything up on the web, you have everybody ask, asking you all of the things all at, um, all at once. And it becomes a really, really difficult challenge to answer um, all of the quest, quest, questions and engage in a dialogue with that public around all of those topics, particularly in museums um, where, you know, uh, museums in, in Australia are usually government fund, funded and so um, uh, quite limited and reducing uh, public support of those through uh, taxes. Um, and also in, in uh, North America, of course, the people who fund the majority of the, uh, the, not, uh, the not-for-profit museums, which is all except for the Smithsonian pretty much, um, those are usually uh, a very, very small percentage of extremely wealthy people um, who probably don't visit the museum as much as everybody else does. So there's this sort of disconnect between uh, the people who visit museums or people who use museums, the people who uh, work in sort of museums and the people who fund museums. So the business model, for whatever better word, um, is an interesting one where the user is not the funding model. <laughs> it's not the business model. It's not a B2B, just yeah. like the, the public face of the museum very much being a B2C. So, in so the user is not necessarily the main customer. We'll, we'll we'll talk about America in a second. I've got a couple more questions about your time in Sydney. What did you guys learn from uh, you and the museum? Learn from the initial experiments with giving people access to these things and creating their own meaning and folksonomies with the collections. Yeah, look, it was really interesting. I mean, I think at uh, the time, I mean, we we were all caught up in a quite utop utopian vision of the internet still, and we still felt that the web and also then the social media was a net positive thing for the world. And that uh, we did, we had that bias confirmed. I mean, I think in the first couple, couple of years, we had an enormous growth in uh, you know, web, web, web traffic to the collection. We had many, many more visitors using the on kind of line collection and seeing our images on Flickr and other places than actually physically physically visited the museum. I think it was about a one to 20 or one maybe to 30 ratio then. So for every one visitor to the museum physically, we had 30, 20 to 30 on uh, the collection part of the web, website. Um, we, and, and, you know, I think we we got enormous benefit from from that. Um, the museum uh, began to realise the benefit of digitising things. Often when uh, you're digitising museum collections, uh, digitisation is very slow and expensive, maybe costing upwards of um, $80, $90 per item, which doesn't seem like, like much, but when you've got maybe a million items, that's a lot of money that's going to be spent over a long, a long, long period of time. Um, 
And I think it also started to change the relationship between the public and kind of the museum as well and began to allow the public to see the museum as more than just, just a uh, venue to uh, visit on a school excursion on a rainy weekend or as a tourist. It began to re-change the value proposition the museum had back, back to the community. Um, the other thing that happened, of course, was... Um, it, it allowed the museum to begin to build confidence around its own experimentation. So the museum subsequently went on to make some pretty interesting ex experiments with um, the semantic uh, web and data mining and also around mobile. So uh, once we had all those photos in Flickr and all of those photos in Flickr then got geolocated, we could then take, take, take advantage of things like AR very early AR in 2009, putting all those images onto maps uh, meant that you could be out on your phone very early, the iPhone 3, I think it was then, um, and go out and see those photos on kind of your phone on in their original locations around Sydney, which, which mm -hmm. began this sort of sense of the museum con content becoming available where it came from rather than mm -hmm. within the building building itself that opens up a whole lot of possi possibilities for museums and we've seen other museums around the world then take up that um, uh, in the following years too which which was really exciting you know but it was great to be uh, seeing all this stuff going on in Sydney and I think also that the the work at the powerhouse did really affect um, the way other people around the world were thinking about what what was possible and a lot of people in the museum world because you know museums are, are, are charged with preserving things in quotes forever they are naturally very conservative and they're very reluctant to to take risks that might damage that um uh promise that uh things need to last for last forever so they're a bit slow to move on a bunch of things at other places other types of organization are much 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 more willing to take risks and move fast on so the powerhouse was used as a good example by other museums and library and libraries around the um, um around the world of well they have kind of done it so we should do it now too mm -hmm. which which is great and also i remember around that time i don't know if you had any connection to this uh you know obviously you had a long history long long period even by then of being involved with the underground music world around the world but let alone in, let alone in australia but i remember there were some exhibitions that seemed to be trying to get different kinds of people into the museum there, uh, there was a hip-hop one uh and they were just they were some of these special exhibitions had themes that I would not have expected any museum to have done. And, and I remember you, the powerhouse museum had a series of these things. Can you recall what the, some of those exhibitions were, if my memory is correct and how they came to be? Yeah, look, I think during that period too, um, the ex the exhibitions team and the curators really had some really great ideas and we're really pushing into this sort of sense of um, what does it mean for that time, time delay between a museum um, collecting a thing and then putting it out on show to be reduced. So um, we did this really great exhibition about the 1980s and pop, cult uh, pop culture in the 80s, so music, fashion, design uh, and toys and thing things like um, that. And it was a really dense ex exhibition and it was full of all the different sub sub subcult uh, subcultures. It was very interactive. But, you know, that, that exhibition, a lot of the things that you, you saw on show... Um, 
were in fact things that had been borrowed from the community that weren't actually from from the museum's collection, but the museum's collection was used to supplement the um, the things that were loaned. And I think that ex that exhibition came sort of mid midway through the first phase of experimentation with social media in a large large way at the powerhouse. And I think that exhibition was sort of the perfect social 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 media exhibit that that it was one that used at that time blogs and um, uh, Facebook groups to help curate the things in the show and to connect out to those communities around Sydney to um, loan their objects from their own private private collections. But it was also one that was very visually exciting. So when uh, visitors came that visitors also began to post their own photos of visits to the to the to the museum too and remember that this is also at a time and it's very hard to remember this now or even imagine this that in uh, the mid 2000s there were still a lot of museums that had photography bands so when you came into the museum you were told you're not allowed to take any take any photos you know and that now feels feels ridiculous because now when museums design exhibitions, they actually des- design particular parts of them to work, work, work well on so- social through creating scenes that work well um, uh, on uh, when, uh, you know, mobile cameras are used, mobile phone cameras are used. So mm-hmm. it's been quite a shift in a decade later that, ev- that, that everything's di- designed for the, in- uh, for the Instagrammable moment. Yeah, and, and also, uh, and not just that in the way of publishing, because you were also running a blog at the time, so you've kind of got these yeah. things, having, having grown up on the internet where things like experimentation are part of that internet culture, um, sharing and being generous are also part of that internet culture, and pub- publishing things that you learn along the way, and yeah. that then led to you becoming a pretty significant voice in that world, and that led you to America. Tell us how that... It did, yeah. Tell, tell yeah. us about the next gig. Yeah, so it's funny. I mean, you know, I'd always uh, thought it was important to talk about the things you're doing and write, 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 write about the fa- the failures as much as successes. And that's been something I've always talked to my teams about. And so my teams have always written blogs and stuff. So I ended up uh, moving from Sydney to New uh, to New uh, New York and. Um, Bill Mogridge, the direct director then of the Cooper Hewitt, the Smithsonian's Design Museum in New and New York, uh, hired hired me to help rebuild that museum uh, um, on uh, the Upper East Side, and that was a, a really fascinating gig. You know, Bill Mogridge from uh, the IDEO firm initially, and you know he uh, then moved on to be the direct director of the Smithsonian's Design Museum. So you know, someone from major league. Just a design mind, basic, basically a design guru running the National Design Museum of America. It's like a, I'm an offer you can't really refuse. Um, so, I, so I arrive in New York, and the museum's just closed, and it was it was closed to do a major at that point fifty five million dollar redevelopment. It became a ninety-two million dollar redevelopment, um, and so I arrived at, in the end of twenty eleven, or sort of the third quarter of twenty eleven, and I was there for four years, and that saw uh, a digitization of the entire collection there, a repositioning of the institution from being an being a historic house full of old design things to being a very interactive museum. 
Um, and we designed a device with the firm called Local Projects, working also with GE and a bunch of other people around designing a physical device that uh, visitors got a pen that allowed uh, you to move, uh, move, move through the museum and collect all of the things that you saw there to take home. So it was this sort of notion of turning this physically very uh, closed museum in kind of to one that was not only very open, but also one that you, one that was natively digital, that was on kind of the internet by default. And we gave you a device that wasn't your phone because we wanted you to look at things rather than your, your, your phone um, and uh, allowed that to almost work like a magic wand or a library card that allowed you to take everything away from the museum as well. And it was, it was a pretty crazy journey and it was super exciting. It was a great time to be in New, in, in New York and it was a really amazing set of circumstances that, that evolved through that. I had an amazing team, uh, I had an amazing team and amazing colleagues. And I think we did a really major transformation of that institution um, that really isn't about the pen or the device that we made, but the idea of putting the institution properly on the web. Um, not just a website, but actually a full-scale di uh, digital transformation that was really about a brand brand repositioning. It was about um, completely re reframing the museum as a place for people, um, and by the, and through that, uh, product design, um, sort of in the kind of industrial design, in interaction design, architecture. Uh, manufacturing in Taiwan, you know, all this sort of stuff then came out of that. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of writing about that, but that, that, ex that, that experience was a particularly interesting experience because it was one that was taking a museum that wanted to do a lot, but was, had a lot of architectural challenges and brand challenges to its ability to do what it wanted to do. And, and, and uh, the injection and, and investment of money was phenomenal from uh, you know, Bloomberg Philanthropies and private kind of donors towards making that um, transformation a physical reality. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, that was a massive thing. And, uh, you know, four, four years of that was, uh, was an incredible experience, but also a very exhausting experience. <laughs> Okay, we'll get onto that in a second. I just think, so, so I, sometimes I don't plot people's career paths explicitly, but I think yours is interesting because I guess over, over the course of 12 years or so, you went from a, an IT guy to a web manager to a head of digital and social to essentially being really a really key part of the quote-unquote business of a museum. And it's, it's interesting because I don't, that's, I don't think that's going to be a rare career, career path in the future, but it was definitely something that a lot of people, a career path like that is something that people had the fortune of falling into back then. Do you, do you think that people could fall into a career path like that starting now? I, I think it's different now. I, I think what was interesting about, you know, people our age is that um, we, we were like people who grew up with punk or grew up in the 60s, that, that there, there were these sort of particular moments um, where people who were working in adjacent fields pick up the zeitgeist of the, the time and uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a fluidity there. And I've, I've actually just been reading this fabulous um, 
book by Merck Robbie called Be Creative, which, which, which is looking at how people who grew up, particularly around the club and party scene in the late 80s and 90s, putting on events, de- developed a particular um, sense of way, uh, sense of working with others, this sort of what she calls a network sociality that came out of uh, putting on parties and events and music, music things and designing spaces and making zines and doing all this self kind of publishing, self-organising, but, but working um, very, very much with networks that resemble really the way the web works. And so it was very easy, easy for people who grew up with those very practical skills, organising in that way to transfer those skills to a global scale with uh, the web. And I think that's just sort of nice um, fortune of the times. People growing up now, people in careers now, um, those sorts of skills are the sort of skills that you now perhaps are expected to be taught or people expect to be taught. But I think there was some, some, something um, diff, different about learning those in an environment where you could experiment with, with um, the learning of those in a practical way. Um, and that paralleled the rise of the web and all the opportunities there and um, the, the, the ease of failure that, that when we were growing up and developing our own careers, both you, you and I, the sort of sense that things would fail were not, were not catastrophic. They were um, things that you took in your stride and you went on and tried another thing. I think the stakes are higher now. Uh, in those fields. Um, but there are other fields that are emerging now that are very exciting uh, too that, you know, I mean, I have people in my teams now that that are picking up all of this exciting stuff with machine kind of learning um, and also in, in uh, physical design that I had no, I, I can sort of get out of the way of stop, 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 stopping rather than having to know it all, you know, I think my role now is trying to protect people with good ideas to allow those, those ideas similarly the way people protected me and some of the ideas I had that were a bit like, what the hell? And, and my role as an executive now is to let that happen um, and protect it enough so that fail, failure is very um, uh, low impact for, for, for the people experimenting. And for the organisation as well, obviously, you know. So. Totally, totally, yeah. And I think this, this, as far as the stakes being higher, I mean, in, in countries where healthcare or good healthcare is connected to a job and that to get a job yeah. that is quote-unquote good, you need education that's going to give you thousands and thousands of dollars of debt. There's definitely certain things that I think in Australia we, we would have totally taken for granted. And until you work in America and you see the stress that a lot of these a lot of people have because of these things, uh, and they might look, hey, they might be the only person in there in their family who got out of a small town and really challenging situation to get into a city like New York and they don't want to go back. Totally. Uh, yeah. And totally. the stakes are way higher than people uh, understand when they're, when they're operating in a place like Australia, even though from where I am right now, Australia seems pretty frenetic and frenzied and confused. Uh, based totally. on social, yeah, yeah, yeah. Social. I mean, it's all perspective. I think that was, that, that, that was the other amazing thing working in New York was to get that experience of just, uh, the different sense of risk, the different sense of the stakes, uh, the different sense of the opportunity, but also the different sense of inequality and in the kind of justice too, you know, that's made me perhaps, yeah. uh, it's re- 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 reawakened some of my more uh, 
uh, radical urges now returning to to Melbourne and Australia, I think I'm now much more com committed to the sort of change I think that we need to make as a society globally, you know. Yes, Australia's funny. I don't know about you, but growing up, I did feel that we were only allowed to care about a, a few few things. And if you look at a newspaper now, it's probably the same stories from 10, 20 years ago, everything from housing prices to the stock market to immigrants yeah. and, and, and sport. And it's not that I'm cringing about that. I really appreciate what I, how I grew up and what I grew up with in a lot of ways. But you know, it wasn't until I was, I think, 15 or 16 in a small town in France. And I was there for a couple of weeks and got pulled into this protest because people were protesting this guy, Pasqua, who wanted to put street cam cameras on, uh, on every street corner. And there were hundreds of people running up and down roads protesting this. And I was like, oh, we wouldn't really think or talk about yeah. this as teen teenagers in Australia. And then you spend a bit of time overseas and you're like, oh, okay, there's a bit more sense of history in some places about when you don't turn to activism, when you don't stand up, the outcome is really not good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think Australia's still pretty naive about many things. And I think there's a sort of, there's something nice in that, but it's also kind of not appropriate anymore. You know, we're going to do stuff. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm also very thankful that I was able to um, and privileged to, have the ability to travel and move uh, when I needed to move and uh, take, take my family out of America when I needed to as well. So yeah. I know a lot of people, you know, I, I also had a lot of colleagues who, who had come into New York, but had no escape plan. And, and, and it was very difficult for them to get out uh, financially, you know? So uh, yeah. So anyway, Ooh. it's privilege. You know? right. I think that's a whole other conversation, but, but oh, yeah. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about research. You must've, uh, been involved with a lot of research projects. And I don't know if the pen at the Cooper Hewitt Museum is the, the project to talk about, but can you think of some of your favorite pieces of research? Yeah, so look, we do, I mean, my teams and I've done, we, we do a lot of research, but we do a lot of different types of research. So um, because museums are also aligned with academia, we, we do form, form, formalized research with uh, universities. Um, and that's, that, uh, is sort of long, long, long sort of scale um, uh, academic paper generating, conference paper generating sort of research that is speculative um, and theoretical. And then we also do a lot of practical research. So we do a lot of user test testing. Uh, we do a lot of um, market market research and all of those other things around that. So there's all these scales from theoretical right down to the very, very practical, very, 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 very practical. It's part of my remit, I guess. And it's interesting sort of, sort of having to bounce between the very, very pra practical and the very, very theoretical. I, I think it's often, particularly in the commercial world and, and certainly working with lots of agencies throughout my career, not inside, but working with, I see a lot of, um, uh, very very good practical short-term research that goes goes on and a lot of assumptions made but not a lot of the theoretical stuff which allows those um, assumptions to be contextualized so uh, part of what my teams do in museums is work with this sort of notion of bouncing bouncing between the sort of what 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 what, what can I learn by going and observing and doing design of research with people in a building or, or usability test 
tests, testing with people with a digital product, um, and what what can I learn from the theoretical work that that expands that context of which these products and service, services operate within. So. The other interesting thing in museums, of course, is museums are physical spaces. So in my, as, as my career has developed, I guess I've become a lot more uh, curious about the impact of architecture and how people feel in a space. And also that, that sense of what is, you know, if I'm doing customer journey mapping, how does it feel when Mark leaves, leaves his house with his, with his kids and walks to the, to, to the museum or gets a train, uh, but to the museum, how, how is Mark and his kids feeling during that, that part of the journey, which completely affects how they're going to feel within the museum itself. So that sense of expanding out the circle of interest, for want of a better phrase, um, has become really important to me. And um, one of the things that my teams at the moment in Melbourne work, work on a lot, you know, um, now I'm in a museum of film and TV and video games with a national museum of film, TV and video games. So that's kind of awesome and fun, but it's also a thing that we're sort of the museum of all of the things that you can get when you get home. So why, why, why come, come, come to the museum when I can watch those films, not only at home, but on my couch and not only at home, but on, on, on my phone. What does it mean to talk about video games in a museum when actually the video games are better perhaps played on your phone or on your couch, that sort of thing. So um, I think that research that I'm, the research I'm involved in now is very, very much about the context of things rather than the content of things. Right. Oh, and how do, how do you measure success now? Well, not now, but in general, how does a museum measure success when the business model is about funding. So does it mean that one of the main metrics is the amount of money donated? Is it about people coming in? Is it about people looking at things on offline, talking about it? Like what, what are the metrics that matter? Yeah, there's a lot of different, different metrics that matter to different people within the, within the organisation as well as to different stake, stakeholders. Sometimes in my case now, or my case at the powerhouse, the stake, stakeholder was government. And, gov- and governments care about different things. So some, some, sometimes governments care more, more about visitors and then they care about particular types of visitors, particularly tourists, because if, you, if you're seen as part of the tourist economy, then it is about the number of tourists you, you get who actually are coming to see your, your, your thing but happen to stay in a hotel. So the hotel bed sold is it is in fact part of the measure of success of your museum i totally uh, but then there are so, so i totally get that now because every time i travel i look at well i look up whether there are good museums to visit but i never would have thought of that as a key metric before so people care about that now governments particularly tourism depart- yes. departments care a lot about that but also uh, education de- 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 departments in government and um the trade and um, uh, the, eco- the economic development parts of the government also care about whether you're inspiring uh, younger people to pursue a ca- a careers in a new economy. So um, are museums uh, sparking that cur- curiosity amongst kids to uh, pursue further education or develop specialisation? Um, and then there's also the social mission, the social purpose. Do museums have social purposes too that are about um, creating meaning and building social cohesion? 
um, in kind of the uh, UK during uh, the Blair, Blair, Blair years. So that sort of mid 90s period, museums were ac actually measured about uh, whether they uh, created op uh, created uh, social out outcomes for their community. So did uh, youth youth crime be reduced? That sort of thing. So, so museums have this sort of social purpose as well. So it, it really depends. And I think what's interesting within the working inside the museum is the way that you work with teams within the museum to articulate the different types of val value that your organisation creates mm -hmm. through its products and serv services, then articulate the right sort of measures to the respective stakeholders. So I guess, and some, sometimes I've compared a museum in terms of its portfolio of things it does to, I guess, like a corporation that has a lot of sub-brands that all make diff different products. And that corporation cares about the health of all of its sub-brands. And sometimes those brands compete against, against each other, that sort of a museum. Mm. Uh, but instead of creating sharehold, hold, hold, hold a value, it's creating this sort of amorphous public value that is articulated in these different ways to different people within government or private or you know private philanthropists at the Cooper here at the Smithsonian. So at there in New York, um, the Smithsonian in Washington had a series of measures that um, the museum was uh, had had to kind of to report against that was part of the money it got from the Smithsonian in Washington, which in turn gets gets its get gets its money from the US federal government. So so it has a series of measures it has to report back. Uh, but it also raised a lot of money from private from private philanthropists. So those private philanthropists, I think when I left, there were about 42 people on the Cooper Hewitt board who gave the majority of money to the, to the museum. Probably about, I think about 60% of its income was from from private philanthropy and found and foundations um, about 30% from uh, the Smithsonian in Washington and about 10% through ticket sales. Mm. So 90% of the income was from government or from private, private, private philanthropy. And each of those private philanthropists had different interests for giving that money and wanted different types of accountability. Right. Some really cared about, you know, 19th century furniture, others cared about future tech technology and, and you're balancing those interests and um, yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting uh, challenge. What, what about with the government funding in the past few years with, I guess, populism being such a thing right now, are there, are there many museums that are under populist pressure from governments, whatever that means? Of course. Of course, all around the world. I mean, um, fun, funding for arts and culture has been reducing. I'm very fortunate in Melbourne to live in a state which has a very, uh, very uh, you know, progressive government that's just actually been re-elected, uh, which, which has really started to use arts and culture as one of the differentiators of this city and state. Um, which means that, if, that, if, that in fact the Victorian gov, gov, government has been supporting the arts direct, directly um, and artists di di directly as well as museums and li libraries in, in really amazing ways. We've just, just received a $40 million to do, well, $36 million to do a $40 million re 
redevelopment of um, um, of our physical site, which is great. Um, mm. But around um, the world, yeah, it's really tough. And I think um, this is where you're starting to see museums need to reach back into their own communities and to build a different sort of social, social contract mm. with those with those communities and find new ways of generating revenue um, and new ways of creating value uh, when you are renegotiating what your purpose is with the communities that, that, that support you. Um, it's not only how are those communities going to financially support you in new ways, but also what sort of new, new types of value, of value are you going to create for them? So you're starting to see museums doing a whole bunch of different types types of exhibit um, as well as different um, types of social pro, uh, you know, social pro, you know, programs as well. And what's been fascinating in the art world is also the way artists are also expecting museums to work in a different, different, a different way too, and are pushing museums to be more responsible to their own communities and mm. also calling into to, uh, to quest, uh, question, particularly in America, the makeup of their boards. So you might have noticed the uh, sort of Whitney Museum at kind of the moment uh, has a huge protest going on in, um, um, in kind of cited because it turns out one of their board, one of the people on their board who funds a lot of the things that they do is also the owner of the company that manufactures the tear gas that was used at the uh, Mexican border recent, recently. And people who go to the museum are shocked and horrified by, by that. Many of the staff are too. And uh, many artists are also shocked. And so that sort of creates this really interesting dynamic between the business model of the museum uh, and the type of social out, outcomes it's trying to create and, and the progressive na nature of what it puts on. Uh, perhaps is called into quest question by uh, where kind of the money com comes from. Hmm. Interesting. Two last questions. Uh, which museums do you keep a close eye on around the world? Oh, look, I, I, it's interesting. I, I, people ask me this every time I talk uh, to them, and I don't have an answer for it still. It's kind of appalling, but I, I try to... Now, whenever whenever I visit another city, I try to try to visit museums I haven't been to before, and I'm in fact always find that the smaller museums are often the most exciting, and also the strangest museums. So, I'm a huge fan um, of the uh, Museum of Hunting in Paris, which is this strange private or semi-private museum which is about hunting. So it's full of things that I usually personally would be like, what, why am I going there? But it has this amazing way of showing um, taxidermy. So all these an the, these animals that are hunt, hunt, hunting trophies um, and all these weapons that are used to hunt. Uh, but it also mixes that up with, with contemporary art. So there's these sort of really provocative and quirky d displays. Um, and, uh, you know, I also really like the Museum of Broken kind of Relationships when I saw, um, the, saw, saw that in, L, um, in LA. Um, it's actually initially began in Zagreb, I think. It's an art kind of, art kind of project um, which, the, which the artist works in a particular city and people send, send in things from previous, previous relationships. And those uh, things range from letters to like mix mixtapes remember them through to um there was one with uh, belly button lint and then 
those ob those objects are put out on in museum style showcases, and then there's a little story about each of them. That was very, 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 very moving. You know, reading all these stories stories of people's broken up relationships and stuff, um, and and it really pointed to the purpose of the object, the purpose of the thing was as a prop to um, tell this story and it's the story that has an impact on your on you as a uh, visitor to the museum not actually the thing itself hmm. and that it's just those sort of things you know it's like um yeah museums are storytelling machines you know and they're also yeah. curiosity machines and that's what i like about them it's funny when i travel i usually go to a museum or an art gallery and uh, I, I go there to have some kind of moment. And I had two moments this year. One was at the Pop Museum in Seattle where they had uh, David Bowie, Jimi Hendrix, Nirvana, Star Trek. That's a really big, beautiful, colourful, kind of expensive-looking museum. But I mm. remember going there just going, oh, my God, these are my people reading about their stories and what they did yeah. for, their, for their craft. And then the other one is, was in the complete opposite type of environment at the Dublin Writers' Centre about a month ago and there's not much there there's two really two rooms and there's <laughs> they probably haven't changed in a very very long time and i did this audio tour for 40 minutes and i had another moment and uh they're, they're beautiful beautiful experiences when they happen there are still a lot yeah. of museums that i go to and don't get a lot of uh, i don't get anything from and I'm, I'm kind of curious about that which and it kind of sort of segues to this question sort of not really uh is there sure. pressure on museums to have more novel experiences more often than ever before to keep local people entertained so they have stuff for the local news cycle or does tourism that happens every now and then mean that there isn't as much pressure on museums to update their stuff so quickly uh it depends on the depends on the museum and it depends a lot on um uh, how the museum has defined itself. I think what you are seeing, though, is a trend towards museums having more exhibitions more often. So that sort of sense of having something that is newsworthy uh, more frequently and also a thing that um, different things for uh, the people who, reg who, who live locally to come back more regularly. A lot of times when I speak with museum directors, and when I think about my museums as well, uh, the museums that, I, that I've worked, worked in, there's been a really big focus on revisitation, that sort of sense that it's much easier and, if we're blunt, cheaper to attract someone to come back again than it is to acquire a new customer, a new visitor. Um, mm -hmm. So that sense that in order to get, get people to come back, you've got to change, change over things more often uh, is an interesting I idea and it's one actually if I go right, right back to my career at the start at the powerhouse It was really fascinating. It was some of the most loved things at the powerhouse And you can see this perhaps in some of the controversy around moving moving to powerhouse to Parramatta that's emerged in the media over the last couple of years um, has been around these are things that I I remember taking my 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 kids to and I want my my kids to to take their 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 kids to see the same things. So and you saw this also at um the Natural History Museum in New York when they uh first were were proposing to remove the dior the dioramas that they were such um dated and uh perhaps uh problematic 
things in the modern age, but people loved them for their nostalgia value and that they could they could say that they've always grown up with those being the same. So there's this dual uh, tension in museums between being places of memory where, where people feel nostalgic and can remember seeing those same things as a kid mm. and also places of dynamism where they are responsive and dynamic and responsive to their communities and all of that. So um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tension that plays out and I think it's interesting working in a museum now that has only just recently started to call itself a you know, museum and we're just, just, just about to close for, for 11 months to do this big rebuild. Um, we've also been thinking about what does, it, what does it mean to pull out an ex exhibition that, that is very much loved and still visited by 750,000 people a year uh, and replace it with a completely new thing. How are we going to farewell that exhibition for a start and give uh, people the last chance to say bye to it? This is like decommissioning a product, like a very familiar flavour of a soft, uh, soft, soft drink, for example. You know, it's that sort of thing. How, how do we allow people to farewell that appropriately, but also to move on and say that, in fact, for us to deliver the sort of value we now need to deliver, we do need to change these kinds of things. Um, and it's that tension, I think, you know, um, between, you know, if I think in sort of big business sense, your loyal customers may not actually be your growth, growth, growth market, that you may need to uh, uh, be willing to let go some of your most kind of loyal customers in order to move into the space where you have the most opportunity. And, and, and that's, that I think for, for museums has been a bit of an existential challenge. Certainly at Cooper Hewitt too, you know, we had, when I started there, I think the audience research when I started was that the, av the average visitor to the museum was a woman who was over, over 55 and lived within two, two miles of the building. Um, Slate uh, published a piece earlier in the year about the new Cooper Hewitt and how it had gone over the previous three years, and the av the, av the, av the average age of visitor had dropped to 27. And for me, that is a massive um, su 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 success. But you can imagine that that sort of pivot, for want of a better word, is 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 a challenging one, um, uh, if not all you know, your biggest attractors are now your detractors perhaps, or pe you know, people again, because museums are much kind of loved places, uh, feel a sense of ownership as they should. Um, so that, that, that repositioning and rebranding and cultural shift and experience design change can also be quite effective, um, affecting on um, people who are your biggest fans. You know, if I think, think back to music too, you know, when, you know, you go to, you know, Wu-Tang just played in Sydney this, this week. You know, I mean, you can't imagine going to the Wu-Tang show and hearing new, new material. It would be horrifying. You just want to hear the, class <laughs> the classics, right? So, you know, um, it's like that. So, here, so it's that same problem that, her the, that heritage rock tours have, you know. Mm, if I ever hear <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if I ever hear you DJ live again, I'm just going to say something bizarre. Like, could you just play the, those tracks from 1992 that you always used to play? Not, not knowing what I'm even requesting, but just trying to yeah, typecast yeah, yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, all right. yeah. Uh, what, what would the Museum of Seb Chan include? 
Look, I'm, I'm super excited where I am now. I'm really excited to be in a museum of the things I love, like film and video games. It's kind of like the dream thing for me in a way, a perverse way. But look, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, and we, we also do lots of exciting contemporary art. So what's it doing? A lot of commissions, which is really one of the other things I love being in um, Melbourne about is this sort of fluidity between what the museum has and does and what we can commission from artists to make as new works. It's sort of impact that uh, we can have in allowing new work to be made. And our director, Katrina Sedgwick, has been really great in reigniting that commissioning urge for the museum. So the museum is involved in creating new things. And we also run an accelerator and and co-working space within the staff offices. So we have 60 desks, people who are going, making their own products and services in the commercial world working amongst the staff, which is, which is incredible. And that sort of dynamism has been, has really changed the way I think about the sort of what a, the borders of a museum is and what it can actually be. And, and it's been interesting being in a place that, that isn't so, so much about presenting things from the past. Part of my role now is also is the collections team reporting to me. And when we think about what, what the ACMI collections are, those collections are really raw materials for others to, to make new things with and to think of the collection in that sense rather than as, as, pre, as rather that is in a pure preservation sense is, is super, super exciting and um, uh, stimulating for me. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think for, for me, I'm interested in museums being places that continuously change. I'm not interested in museums as static things. I'm not interested in muse, muse, museums as a historic house that preserves the past almost in carbonite, like hand the solo. It's, it's not like that. It should, be, uh, it should be responsive to the communities it serves. And, and it should also talk, talk about the most top, topical issues and draw those topical is, issues back to things in the past. There's almost nothing that we're experiencing in the world now that hasn't been experienced in other, I mean, other points in human history. And I think it's important that we remember that not many of the problems we face now are completely new. The technologies are new. The context is new, but these are old human problems coming back again. And yet there is Seb Chan looking at ways to remix them. I think that's going to be the title of your autobiography, if you ever do one, My Life as a Remix, which is not necessarily an amazing title, but it gets the theme across. Seb, yeah, thank you so much. That, for... right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. Just, start, just make it obvious. Start with obvious or start with really strange. It's, it's fine. I mean, most book titles are pretty straightforward. Uh, Seb, exactly. thank you so much for joining me. It's been amazing. I appreciate all those five years every Tuesday I'd come into that studio at the top of UTS in Sydney and Chinatown at 2SER and I would see you and Luke there most most times I was there and you were kind of this feature in my life that while we're in sort of different sub-genres I think there was enough respect uh, and I always, I always appreciated uh, your spirits and your souls and um, the work you've been doing is obviously incredible I uh, really appreciate you sharing your brain with us today my man where can people find you on the internet uh, find me on Twitter at, at, at kind of Seb Chan, uh, also uh, on Medium there too. I, I float around. I'm, I'm not hard to find. <laughs> at Seb Chan. All right, Seb. Thank you so much. Enjoy your week. Cheers, mate. Peace. Thanks, man. See you.